welcome everybody to season three, and this is episode two in season three that we're calling Satisfaction. Now, I got to tell you, I have had a bug all week. It's non-COVID, but it's settling my throat, and so I've got my cough drop here in case things get a little bit out of hand. I got my hot tea. I even got my Kleenex ready, all right, because we're going to get through this message together. So if you're at home, someplace comfortable, grab a cup of tea and join me, all right, as we go into this special message that's really going to be in two parts, and I'll finish it up next weekend. But let's start where we left off last time. Jesus was at this well, Jesus the Son of God, on his way north to Galilee. He stopped here at this very ancient spot, a well that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And while Jesus sat by the well, it was about noon, he was hot, he was tired, he was thirsty. He sent his disciples into the Samaritan town, of all places, to buy some food. And out came this woman, this Samaritan woman. A tradition calls her Fotina. We don't know her name. But she comes out by herself, draws some water for herself and her companion back home. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water and in return tells her, that he has a drink for her, of a special kind of water, of an eternal water that will fill all the longings of her soul, the love that she's looking for, the sense of worth and value from her creator, that as she drinks this water, she'll be satisfied forever. Well, She responds and says, give me a drink of that water so that I don't have to come back to this well over and over again. So she wasn't quite getting it. And so Jesus said to her, well, I tell you what, go back home and bring your husband here. And she said to Jesus, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now, you're not even married to him. Now, That's an awkward moment, don't you think? And if you've ever been in an awkward moment conversation where you just think, I just, I don't want to go further with this, you have two options, right? You can just walk away and leave, or you can try to change the subject. So she tries to change the subject. And she's very, uh, very astute. She says to Jesus there in John chapter four, I see that you're a prophet, You know, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where you should worship God. We Samaritans say it's here at Mount Gerizim. What do you think about this? Clever, huh? Going to try to engage Jesus in a little theological debate to get the attention away from her immoral life. Well, Jesus goes with it. And Jesus says to her, you know, there's coming a time when it's not going to be about where you worship God. It's not going to be about Jerusalem. It's not going to be about Gerizim. And then he says something very interesting to her in the text. In John chapter 4, verse 22, he says to her, You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. And I just want to stop there for a moment. I want to suggest to you that what Jesus says to her about her and the Samaritan people, I think could be said about a lot of us. I think there are a lot of us that know very little about who it is that we worship. And I think that is one of the reasons we feel such spiritual dissatisfaction in our lives, even as the followers of Christ. 
And then Jesus goes on and he says this to her and to us. But the time is coming, Jesus says. Indeed, it's here now. I love this. When true worshipers, okay, so are you a true worshiper? When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is a spirit. That's why God said, never make anything in my image. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The one said, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And in that moment, her life was about to be absolutely transformed and changed. Do you know why? Because in that moment, she encountered the living God. And unless one encounters the living God in worship, one never really knows what they have in their life, who they have in their life. And I just think there are a lot of us that are like that woman. We know a lot about God in the head, but not in the leb. We haven't really encountered Christ, or it would, it would just be so transformational in our daily lives. And yet there's this thirst in our lives to be in contact with God. You know, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of people have actually been turning to the occult to try to find some connection with a power greater than themselves, trying to figure out what is happening to them in this world. And witchcraft has, has become very popular during the pandemic. And TikTok, or hashtag witchtalk, has had about 20.5 billion, that's with a B, 20.5 billion views during the pandemic. And the influential, top influential teachers of this have millions of followers. And they teach them certain spells and they teach them how to manifest their dreams into, into a truth, into a reality. And they, they teach them how to um, claim lovers and, and all kinds of stuff like this. And people are really into it. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, Harry Potter kind of stuff. People are serious about this stuff and pursuing it. It's interesting that a, uh, a scholar uh, by the name of James Alcock, he's a professor of psychology at Yale explains this interest. He says, in times of uncertainty, people have historically looked to the occult, get some kind of answer about the future, something that's reassuring in some way for them. You know, uh, that baffles people like uh, Richard Dawkins or, or Bill Nye the Science Guy or, or other rationalist secularists who believe that there is nothing supernatural, that everything can be explained naturally. It just baffles their mind that people would, would actually reach out to try to get in contact with some kind of supernatural power. They don't understand it. Why can't people accept that there is no God, that you are born, you live, and you die? And that's it. It's because I think every time those naturalists try to emphasize and magnify that there is no God, there's no supernatural world or realm, 
it just intensifies in people that urge and that desire. Because all of us were born wired with the sense that there's more to life than just us. There's more to life than just what we see around us, that there's an invisible realm that somehow we are connected into. In fact, I believe with those who say, you've got to really talk people out of believing in God, not talk them into believing in God. And I think that's very true. Of course, a lot of people these days have been talked out of it. But even atheists admit they pray at times. In fact, I heard a man who's a staunch atheist, he's a celebrity the other day on the television, and uh, he was making a comment about something, and he looked up at the sky and he said, God rest his soul. And I just thought, wow, it's one thing to say I don't believe in God, but then it's just kind of part of who we are. But here's the part that bothers me. Why aren't they going to church to find God? Why aren't they coming to the communities of faith who claim to know God and worship God and experience God? Why aren't they showing up here? Kerry Newhoff is a, a pastor. He's a, a church leader, a researcher, and he writes a lot about church and culture. Recently, he had a blog, and he was talking about five reasons why, why people are not going to church. And it was interesting, but one of the reasons really stood out to me. And it's this. He says, because God is missing in the church. Because God is missing in the church. If you listen to the media, and I know that's hard to do, if you listen to your peers, you listen to people out there these days, they have a pretty negative attitude toward the church. You hear things like, well, you know, church is just, it's just full of politics. Or the church is always talking about what it's against. Or they always talk about money. Or, you know, the, the church are, are, is just full of hypocrites and, and there's, you know, moral failures and there's abuse and scandal. And, you know, it's just, it's just a cheap performance and program. There's, God isn't there. Now, I, I think it's so wrong to smear the whole church like that and say that about every church. But let's be honest, those of us who consider ourselves part of the church, who believe in the church, and I do, let's just be honest and say we have not done ourselves any favors in the last couple of years by the way that we behaved and carried on. We have really sent a very negative image to the world around us with our infighting and our politicizing. Every week I get a report, and I'm sad to say that when I, when I see this report about the church in America, Every week I, I, I hear about another pastor, some well-known, some not so well-known, who's either had another moral failing or has been fired because of his abusive behavior or because there's been some kind of sexual abuse and it's been covered up by the leadership in the church. And it's happening right and left amongst Christian leaders. And sometimes I wonder, you know, does God look at us and, and like he did with Israel of old, just say, Ichabod, my glory departs from you. I'm not saying his glory's departed from us. God forbid. Uh, you know, God, God's going to hang in there with us. He always has a remnant. But listen to this. Here's what I think. I think we are losing, as the church, I think we are losing our relevance because by and large, we're void of the presence of God, both in our, in our own personal life and in our community life together. You know, one of the most troubling things through the pandemic has been how many people who were regular churchgoers have stopped going to church. 
they're not coming back in person and they're not watching online like many of you do. And I understand their health concerns and, and you need to be careful. And if you're not nearest any place, I understand watching online. I, I appreciate that. But these folks aren't even watching online. They haven't necessarily gone to some other church. They just have stopped going to church. Why? Because somehow in the pandemic, not being in church, they've not really missed it. And they might miss seeing their friends and different people, but, but they don't miss the people. They don't miss the programs. They don't miss the routine. And they certainly don't miss the presence of God because they never really sensed or experienced that presence of God. Now, those are hard words to hear, and, and don't take it the wrong way. We've got to do some self-examining these days because something's wrong with the church in, the, in our country today. And, and we're all part of the church universal, so we all have to own that and not just say, well, I'm okay. I can't worry about the rest of those because what infects them can infect us as well. So I wrestle with these things and I wonder to myself, you know, what really is taking place here? What is happening? And I think it all comes down to this word that we're all familiar with, and that is worship. I think somehow we have lost the sense of worship. When we were looking at that passage in John chapter 4, did you see or, or hear or count how many times Jesus kept talking about worship, worship, true worship, worship in spirit, worship in truth? Worship is important to God. It's important to us. God shows up in worship, so to speak. There's a psalm that says, I believe it's Psalm 22. It says, God inhabits praise. He inhabits the praise of his people, both Israel and the church. So maybe what we're wrestling with is a praise problem. That we're not experiencing and having this sense of, of the awe of God, that unbelievers aren't coming into our midst and being in awe that God is in this place, that we're not leaving our places of worship and talking about how we experience God today. And I'm not talking about miracles and I'm not talking about speaking in tongues and I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about a show or theatrics or anything like that. I'm just talking about being so aware that God is in the house, so to speak. So maybe what we need to do is camp with Jesus and the woman at the well and explore a little bit about what Jesus meant when he was talking to her and us about worship. So here's the question. What is worship? What does it mean to worship? Now, the word worship means to recognize someone as superior to myself. And in recognizing that person's superiority, I reverence them, okay? I bow to them. I acknowledge that superiority. In the Greek, proskuneo, it actually means, the word for worship actually means to kiss. So it means to recognize with reverence the one before me, to submit to them and to kiss, to take my lips, a vulnerable part of my, my face, and lay my lips on their feet or on the hand. Or if I dare have the intimacy, if I dare have the, the right, to put my lips on their face. That's what it means to worship. So in a sense, what we could say is to worship is to kiss God. Have that intimacy with him. 
Another word that helps me understand worship is to break it up in the old English and think of worship. It is to know the worth of the one who we are worshiping. Let's talk a little bit about that. I uh, was reading about a man in Arizona, and this man uh, was um, selling off a lot of his belongings. He was downsizing, going to move into retirement community. And he had a few things that he thought might be worth some money, like an old Lakers poster. So he called up a guy by the name of Josh Levine there in Arizona and asked him to come over. Josh was an appraiser. And maybe tell him how much the poster was worth. The guy was hoping maybe he'd get two, three hundred bucks out of it. Well, Josh came by and saw the poster and really didn't care much about it. But what caught his eye was this picture that was hanging on the man's wall. It was kind of abstract with swirling colors. And he looked at it and he looked at it and he got kind of excited and he said, You know what? I think that's a Jackson Pollock picture, painting. And if it is, it is worth a lot of money. Would you let me, would you let me have it professionally appraised by, by somebody who's an expert in that, in that art and in that artist? And, and if, it's, if it's a Jackson Pollock, are you willing to pay for it to be restored? Because it, it needs to be restored. The man said, sure, go ahead, check it out. Well, sure enough, it was by Jackson Pollock. The man had come by it because his sister had been a socialite in New York, had died, and kind of left her stuff to her brother, and he just kind of grabbed some things out of her apartment and took them home. He didn't know what he had and put it up on the wall. Do you know by the time that thing was restored, it was auctioned off for nearly $15 million. I read about a lady in New York State. She went to a yard sale and bought a bowl, just a five-inch round, you know, bowl. It looked kind of old. It was kind of unique. And she brought it home and set it on a you know, little stand, kind of a little bit of a showpiece. And I don't know, after several months, she became kind of interested in what, you know, what might be the history behind that bowl. So she took the time and the effort and the money to go have it checked out and appraised and found out that it was what's called a ding, D-I-N-G, a ding bowl. It's a thousand, year old, thousand years old. And so the Northern Song Dynasty, there's only one other bowl like it in the London Museum. That was put up for auction. It finally sold in a very tight bidding war for $2.2 million. Can you imagine? Now, I want you to think about that man in Arizona and that woman with her bowl. Prior to finding how much it was worth, it was just an object in the house that they hardly ever paid attention to. Kind of like the socks in your drawer. But when they found out what it was worth was, number two things. Number one, it became their focus. Oh my goodness. It became the focus of their life. Talk about guarding and protecting, being aware constantly of this picture on my wall, of this, of this bowl on my stand. And it became something they were willing to invest a lot of time and money into to get that picture restored so it would carry that great value to, you know, go to the effort of having that bowl checked out so it would sell for its great value. It didn't bother. They were were happy to focus on it and they were happy to invest in it because they realized the worth of it. That's God. 
do you and I understand the worth of who it is who has died on the cross for us, who it is that has come to give us the good news, who it is that wants to live in our lives and who it is that's going to come back again someday? Or is he just like a sock in the drawer, a bowl on the shelf, a painting on the wall? You know, here at our campus, we have these pens. I forgot to bring one up that we uh, put in the pews or in the chairs at our campuses for people to use to write notes or fill out cards. And, you know, we buy them, you know, by the pennies in bulk, right? Well, imagine if I had one of those pens with me right now. And I said to you, here, I will sell this pen to whoever will give me $1,000. I doubt there's anybody that would call me, text me, write me, and say, I beg you, sell me that pen for $1,000. You would think I was nuts. But if I told you right now that up on stage behind me is a brand new 2022 fully loaded, the most expensive BMW car model there is, and I only want $1,000 for it, you'd faint. You'd rush the place. You'd fly in. You'd find $1,000 wherever you could. You'd bid up for it because you recognize the worth of it. And $1,000 is nothing compared to it. What matters to you? What holds worth and value to you in your life? Is it sports? Is it career? Is it relationships? Is it possessions? Is it the house? Is it the boat? We all have things that have worth in our life. We tend to give our attention to things that, that we believe have worth. Where does God fit into all of that? See, God's not going to be present where he's not counted worthy and esteemed as worthy. God is worth everything. God is worth everything. Now, I want to clear something up because there is something that Jesus said that bothers some people. Let's go back to what he said in verse 23. He said, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, in spirit and in truth. And some people are bothered by this idea that God somehow needs people to worship him. Let's be honest, it, it bothers all of us when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I want you to pay attention to me. I want you to do what I want done. I don't like to be around people like that, do you? I don't like to be around people who are always busy praising themselves and wanting praise, but never praise anybody else. They're no fun to be around. I want to be around people who can, you know, praise things in general, and I love being around people who praise me, don't you? Let's be honest. We love when people tell us that we're, you know, smart or good-looking or athletic or that we're funny, or we're fun to be with, or we're, you know, whatever. We, we love to hear that. We love it when people are, are proud of us. Well, please understand, all right? God does not need our worship, okay? He doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need your worship. He's not up there fretting and worrying because he needs to be worshipped. 
So what did Jesus mean when he says, my father's looking for people to worship him that way? I love this, watch. God doesn't want your worship because he needs it. You ready? He wants it because you need it. You need it. Think about that for a minute. God says, worship me because you need it. This is for you. This is good for you. This will change your life. It's going to change the life of the woman at the well. It changes your life. It changes my life. I don't worship God to get something from God. I worship God because of what I've already received from God. I like this statement. Worshiping God happens when I gaze. I want you to look at that word for a moment. When I gaze at who he is and all of what he has done for me. Did you catch that? It is good for me. It is good for my lab, my soul, when I take the time to gaze at God and think about who he is and all that he's done for me. But what does it mean to gaze? Well, dictionary.com defines gaze this way. It says, to look steadily and intently as with great curiosity, interest, pleasure, or wonder. Is that, is that how you think about God? Every day, do you think that way about God? Or Merriam-Webster, if you want something a little more academic, puts it this way in that definition, to fix the eyes in a steady intent, look often with eagerness or studious attention. Does that describe how you think and, and, and how you look at God? This past Christmas, our son and, and my daughter-in-law bought us this beautiful uh, digital uh, photo frame and I've loaded it with a bunch of pictures of our family and our, and our loved ones. And I, I got to tell you something. I, I, love, I love just stopping and looking at the pictures. They're on like 15 seconds each. I just, I enjoy it. And it fills my heart with warmth as I see my grandkids and my kids and Marcia and our, you know, our parents, our friends. But I got to be honest with you. It also worries me. Yeah, it does. I worry about their marriages, I worry about their health, I worry about their, you know, their future. I worry about how my grandkids are gonna navigate this world. I worry about what they're gonna think of me in the years to come and will they remember me? Will, will I matter as much in the life of my, of my grandchildren? You know, we tend to gaze at the things that worry us. Harry noticed that? That's what tends to get most of our attention. Let me ask you this question. Uh, what worries you? Because what worries us often tends to hold our gaze. Um, I was doing a little bit of research about uh, cell phones. Do you know that the average American looks at their cell phone 260 times a day? 260 times a day, we're looking at that thing. And statistics tell us that 75.4% of us admit to being addicted to it. And 65.7% of us admit that we sleep with it really close to us. Now, let me ask you a question. When you pick it up and you look at 
whatever you're looking at, CNN or Fox News, or you're looking at your text or your email or your uh, Facebook page or your Instagram or your TikTok or your Twitter or whatever it is you're looking at, does it give you the stocks? Does it give you peace? Or does it make you anxious? I would guess that more often than not, it's not leaving you with just a bunch of peace. I, I'm guessing it's making you kind of anxious, kind of stressed, kind of worried. All that information there. Worshiping God, look, worshiping God keeps us from worry. Did you get that? Worshiping God keeps us from worry. How? Why? Because when we truly enter into the worship of God and the greatness and the bigness and the goodness of God, suddenly all those other things that tend to catch our gaze lose their significance. And if we have God, it's enough. So do you see what the enemy is trying to do to us? Do you see how he's trying to keep us as much as possible from recognizing who Jesus is? Because he doesn't want us to come into a sense of the greatness, the goodness, the largeness, the grandness of God. Well, that's where we find peace. And that's where we find satisfaction. So how do you do that? Well, the woman at the well asked a similar question, except she didn't say how. She said, where do you do it? And listen to what Jesus said to her. He said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And this word hour in the gospel of John, throughout the gospels, almost always refers to Jesus is almost always referring to his death. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is, I'm about to go to the cross. And I'm about to take your place, dear woman. And I'm about to take your place, you who are watching. And he's about to take my place. And he's about to die my death. He's about to take all my sin, my guilt, my shame, my condemnation on himself. All of it and remove it from me, and in exchange, offer me the opportunity to no longer have to go to Jerusalem or Gerizim or any other building or any other place, but to go immediately right into the very throne room and presence of God and kiss God. And God waits with open arms. And he says, come. Come. Now, next weekend, I want to talk about that process of coming. Because it's intimidating to think that you and I can go right into the presence of God and do that. But you know, God wants that not only individually, God also wants that corporately. God loves it when his family comes together, like we do at our campuses. His family worships him. Not because he needs it, but because he knows we need it and because he knows that when we truly encounter his presence, oh my goodness, it changes us. We leave different. And the world knows there's something going on there. It's truly supernatural. So I want you to do a couple things. Number one, 
I want you to realize that God's love, mercy, and forgiveness is always waiting for you. I just want you to accept that. I don't care how you feel right now. I don't care what anybody's ever said to you. I mean, I grew up in a church setting where a good sermon was qualified as being good if it made you feel bad. And while there are times we need to be confronted with our badness, with our sin, I want you to, tell, I want you to know that you got to get through the whole story because there's a good, gracious, loving God who's waiting on the other side. Secondly, realize that in Christ, you have nothing to fear or worry about. Nothing. He's taking care of the condemnation. He's taking care of the judgment. You are welcomed into his Abba's presence. His Abba's going to treat you like his son, like his daughter. Nothing to worry about. I love these words that John writes a little later on in another one of his books. First John, he says, and God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. Have you? God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. That is the truth. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced this perfect love. We love each other because he first loved us. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Number one, I want to challenge you to discipline yourself to gaze at God in spirit and in truth until his presence overcomes you. Secondly, you cannot gaze at God's glory if you don't slow down and look. Remember in our last series I said, Hurriedness is the death of kindness. Hurriedness is the death of worship. You cannot come into the presence of God and be aware of God if you're in a hurry. You're going to have to consider him so worthy that you cut out the time to be with him. So I've got three challenges for you this week that will bring this into a practical reality. You ready for them? Here's the first one. I want you to slow down and choose 15 minutes every morning and every evening to begin to worship God. I said to begin to worship God. In those 15 minutes, number two, I want you to approach God with a gaze on his glory and his grace. Now, if you go to our website, you look under messages and the notes section, we've put up a bunch of passages that deal with the glory and the grace of God. And you can use those passages to meditate on morning and night. That's all I want you to do. That's all I want you to do. And then 
the last one's really easy. I want you to join me next weekend because I got three more very important principles that are going to help you worship and experience God. This past couple of weeks, I've been reading the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 5, I read something that I also read in Genesis 6 that has become my personal prayer. You could pray it for me. But it says about a man that's relatively unknown, Enoch, that he walked close with God. It says it twice about him. And in Genesis chapter 6, it says that Noah walked close with God. I want to walk close with God. I want you to walk close with God. But you cannot walk close with God if you also try to walk close to everyone and everything else. It means recognizing his worthship. Let's pray. Father, take this word and put it deep into our hearts and our minds and help us, Lord, not to be able to get away from it, but to take time, even today, to get alone and ask ourselves, what is God's worth to me? In Jesus' name, amen. See you next weekend.